So we're talking about self-control, getting your life under control, and uh, we are in 2 Peter chapter 1. The whole entire of the series is everything you need. So again, if you have not made it to the front part of the series, we are, I think we're in week four or five, I'm losing track, I think it's week five, but uh, if you didn't hear the first two weeks, uh, week one and two, you got to go back. It sets the whole entire foundation for this whole entire series. And what we talked about is that the key to getting everything that you need in life through Second uh, Peter chapter 1, is knowing God, to know God and actually engage with Him. And we've been saying this whole entire time, it's like, it's like gears of a wheel engaging with God, that uh, you take His life and your life and you come together and it's His life that powers you, knowing Him and then actually engaging with Him. And then Peter says, add these things then to your faith. And if you add these things to your faith, then you will have everything you need. It's a fantastic passage. We're going to be here for the next, oh my goodness, if it's week five, then we have four more weeks to, to check out these seven things that Peter says add. So look at this on, uh, on the screen here, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. We're going to take a look at the third one here. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self Control, and that is what we're talking about today. We've talked about the first two, and now we're going to go to self-control. So back in the 1960s, there was a great uh, psychologist. His name was Walter uh, Michel, and he did the marshmallow test. Have you heard of the marshmallow test? Okay, it wasn't that famous then, <laughs> but he says it was famous. And what he did is he went to Stanford University, and um, there's a preschool on the university. And what he did is he sat down with some four-year-olds. Anybody want marshmallow? These are strawberry. Excellent. Anybody else? Good. Oh, nice. Look at that. Yeah, good. Here you go. Just pick them up, whatever. All right, here's a half-eaten one. Good. So what he did is he took four-year-olds, he sat them at a table, and he put a marshmallow down. He goes, listen, if you can wait two minutes without eating the marshmallow, if you wait two minutes, you'll get another one. And he left the room and turned the cameras on. These kids were sitting there, four years old, and some, some, uh, some four-year-olds are like, forget it. There was another four-year-old that was sitting there and he had to hide his eyes because the the temptation was so great. So you got some people grabbing, you got little kids hiding their eyes. There's no lie. There's one one kid who went up and licked the table around the marshmallow. You know, he's trying it. So uh, Walter, what he did is for 14 years, he followed these kids. The grabbers, the guys that just grabbed, they suffered these things in their life. These were how these 14 years later, the things that, that, that define the grabbers, they had low self-esteem. They were stubborn, easily frustrated. He goes, isn't that interesting? No self-control. And these are some of the character traits of their life. Those who were the waiters, you know, sitting there, whether it be hiding your eyes or licking the table, whatever, those, the waiters 14 years later, were better copers with life, trustworthy, dependable. So Beth and I were talking about this yesterday, and we're like, dude, let's do it on our kids. <laughs> and so we totally did. Sorry about that. And uh, so we totally did. We, we brought the kids in. We're like, would you like some marshmallows? And they're like, yes. And we put them down, and they're like, is this a trick? And we're like, so the marshmallows are on the counter, all right? <laughs> and I'm like, if you can wait, you'll get another one in just a few moments. And they're like, Really? And so they're looking at them, and they're touching them. Like, you can't touch them. They're like, whoa. And they're standing there just yesterday. And, and Addie sniffs it, and she's like, it smells so good. But I'm happy to report they waited. They waited for two minutes. I know. My kids are waiters. <coughs> We're clapping for them. And, and, and then I reflected after that. Beth and I are like, how horrible are we? We are horrible. We're like doing scientific experiments on our children. And my mind is flashing forward. Like years from now, they're going to be like, you remember when dad did tests on us? He would like, we're la- like lab rats, you know, hey, how's your counseling going? Right? So I'm envisioning that. But Peter says here, take self-control, add it to your faith. This is the element to get everything you need for life. Everything for life and godliness. And we want self-control. You want self-control? Seriously, is there anyone in here like, I got way too much (laughs) self-control. You can have some of mine. We all want it. We want it. And we want it because we want to have things under control. We want to be calm, cool, collected. We like our lives 
looking this way and, and, and with, with control. And if we don't have control, we lack it, then it's embarrassing, isn't it? We don't even want to talk to our closest friends about where it is that we lack self-control. Because if we lack self-control, then it leads to failure in our life, right? Because then we think we're a failure if we can't like leave the marshmallow sitting there or whatever it is. We feel failure. And that failure then can lead to, to feelings of hopelessness. Like, am I ever going to shake this addiction? Am I ever going to have victory over this thing? This thing, whatever it is that I don't have control over, just keeps coming after me. And it leads to failure, feelings of failure, feelings of hopelessness. Am I going to ever kick this? You jiving with that? Because when you don't have self-control, that's how you start to feel. You feel lame about yourself. And so we bottle it all up. We don't tell anybody because if we tell somebody, it's embarrassing. If we tell somebody, then they affirm that we're a failure, right? And you feel that way. And we don't tell anybody. We feel lousy and shamed, so we kind of hide it. And we know you're already thinking about it. As soon as we said what today was about, you're like, oh, no. Oh, no. And you started running down the list of the areas in which you don't have control. We just knew that. We're like, I hope he doesn't ask me to raise my hand, you know. I hope I don't have to tell somebody about this because, because we know it follows us. And sooner or later, it kind of catches up with us. Remember Pigpen, right? He was Charlie Brown's friend. Remember that guy? You could ha- you can ha- you can see him half the time because what surrounded him? A cloud, right? Pigpen, just a couple of shoes sticking out of a big, dirty, smelly, stinky cloud, right? And and an ugly, nasty pigpen. And I think if you and I were honest with ourselves and we took a really good look at our hearts and our lives, we'd probably admit, maybe not out loud, but we'd probably admit that we've got sometimes a stinking, looming ugly cloud that follows us around that we kind of drag along with us and understand why it is that we struggle with self-control. Why is it we struggle with that? In order to understand that, sometimes we got to step into that cloud and kind of take a look around and inventory what's on the inside of the dirty, stinky cloud that we find ourselves in. And I think if you looked around that cloud, maybe one of these things would be in there. Maybe there's hurt from past relationships. Maybe there's pain that you drag around your life. Maybe there's betrayal, woundedness. We could go on with emptiness. Maybe there's a lack of value. You just don't feel like you bring anything. Maybe there's, there's a low self-esteem. You don't like who you are. Unhappiness. Whatever it is, due to a myriad of, of different circumstances and situations, whatever it is, that's kind of like the stinky cloud that maybe you drag around with you. And there's hurt in there. And when you have hurt, when you and I experience hurt, what do we do? We try to make it better. We try to make the hurt go away, don't we? When you hurt, stop. I don't want to hurt, right? Something's happened. I got to fix that. I got to not hurt anymore. And so we medicate. We medicate. And we reach for whatever it is, whatever it is in our life that will medicate myself, my broken heart, and deal with the stuff in the stinky cloud that will make me feel better, that will medicate the pain, that will fill the void that I have. I thought we were talking about self-control. We're getting there. That will, will deal with the, 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 the disappointments of my life, the things maybe I don't like about myself. Whatever that is, I reach for it to medicate the stinky cloud. So what do you reach for? It's not that earth-shattering of a list. <laughs> we can come up with a list really fast. We reach for all kinds of stuff to medicate, don't we? Alcohol. Shopping. Oh, I know. There, I said it. Right? Buying stuff right? Uh, food. Oh, I didn't think that was going to be on the list. Food is on the list that we medicate with, right? Drugging, sexing, uh, working, being busy, all these things that we do to reach, to medicate, to feel better, to escape the stinky cloud, the stuff that happens in our life, the stuff that we don't feel good about. And when we medicate, often, this is true, often the pain and the disappointment goes away. It's true for a little bit of time. And if those medicators work in our life, sometimes we reach for them again and again and again and again. Because if they work for even a little bit of time, we'll reach again and again. And sooner or later, those medicators, you know where I'm going with this, those medicators start to take root in our life and they become big temptations, right? They start getting a life of their own. And here you and I sit on the Sunday morning going, oh, that category where I don't have self-control, it started off so innocently, didn't it? And suddenly it's taken root 
and this medicator has become a tempter and it's out of control. Out of control. Out of control of food. Out of control of spending. Out of control of shopping. Out of control with busyness. Out of control with whatever. Fill in the blank. So I want to stop right here really quickly though. And just point this out before we go any further. That the good news is, is that God cares about that stinky cloud. (laughs) He cares about our pain. He cares about our past pain, the, the present pain that we find ourselves in, the frustration. He cares about where we're at in the future and whether it be here in heaven or here on earth or here in heaven. He cares about all that. He cares so much. This God cares so much. This God of, of the scripture. And he says, listen, I care so much that I want to control your life <laughs> because you can't do it on your own. I want to control your life. And furthermore, I want to develop in you my self-control. See, if you and I could get God's self-control, then it's not up to us to try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure it out. It's God in me. It's him in me. It's me engaging in his character, in his qualities, in his life. And and our God is a God of self-control. And so when I engage, I become a person of self-control. And then sooner or later, I don't have to be dominated and defeated. There's so many of us, man, there's so many of us that feel dominated and defeated by the things that are out of control in our life. And you look at that top and you're like, I'm never going to have victory on that. When's the day that I'm, I'm going to be able to kick that habit? And it haunts you. And God is saying, no more. You don't have to be dominated. You don't have to be defeated. You don't have to miss out on the full life that I've called you to live. Anybody want that? Come on. Amen. Yeah, I want that. If we get everything we need in life, are you tasting that a little bit? Add self-control. Because you add self-control to your faith, you start to taste it. Oh, and I don't taste defeat and domination anymore. I taste it. So this morning, I got to go fast. This morning, we're going to look at a story that Jesus told from a different angle. You're going to hear this story here in a minute and go, what? We're going to look at it from a different angle, different perspective that Jesus shared about self-control. We're going to highlight some of the traps that this guy in the story fell into, some of these uncontrolled areas of his life. And then what I want to do at the end of our time together is I want to develop a plan that if you are willing to engage this plan for your life, straight out of Scripture, the same me, Straight out of Scripture, this plan that Jesus lays out here in this story, if you will engage that, I believe that you will walk out of here and into help in Jesus Christ and into hope when it comes to self-control, not devastation. So first of all, grab your programs because there's going to be quite a bit that I want to write down. And again, again, there's so much information. uh, I I can't contain it. I I probably can't can't remember. So I want to encourage you to write down some thoughts don't let this conversation end here on Sunday morning. Don't, don't just, just don't, don't receive and, and not do anything with it. You got to take this this week and talk to God as you're driving along and, and look at, and look at what the things that he tells you and have the conversation with him. So grab your program, write down a few things. The first question that we have to answer is this. What is self-control? What is self-control? In the Greek, really what self-control means is holding oneself in. Pretty good. So it's like a spiritual girdle, right? Holding oneself in, right? Self-control. It means having this idea of like an inner strength. If you were to take a look at your Bible, there are different translations of the Bible. Some of your Bibles wouldn't say self-control. It might actually say temperance. Now, what the word temperance means is this idea of refraining from, from uh, passions or refraining, refraining from, from appetites, And so when we talk about self-control, really it's this inner strength that that pushes away, that refrains these passions and these appetites of the flesh. That's what self-control is. And what God says is add that, add that to your faith. And if you add that to your faith, then you have all you you want for life and godliness. Why do we add that then? Why? What is the tie between everything we need and self-control? Why self-control? Because, we're going to read here this verse right here. What self-control does is actually protects you and me from temptations and destruction. Look at this. Proverbs 25, 28. You'll see it on the screen here. A person without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. Huh. So walls protect things of value, right? That's why cities had walls around them. Protect everything on the inside from being harmed for what's on the outside. 
these walls. And, 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 and so it's secure. And so what do you want to protect, according to Proverbs here? Things that are valuable. And what's valuable in this verse? Your life. Your life is the thing that's valuable, that needs to be secure, that's, that, that, that has to have a wall put around it. So that's literally what self-control is, is that this wall goes up to protect you against destruction, devastation, temptation. However, the reverse is true, that when the walls come down, meaning that self-control isn't present, right, and that, that character quality is not in you, and you haven't engaged that, when the walls are down, then that means that devastation and temptation and all this stuff, all this muck, this sin, the gunk of life starts to creep into your life. And it chases away the life that God intended for you. That's what a life of self-control, devoid, looks like. And so here's a great story that we're going to spend some time soaking in. Jesus takes this idea of self-control, and again, this is going to be a different twist than you've probably seen on this passage, but Jesus takes this and he goes and starts telling a story to the folks that are listening to him. He goes, listen, here's a great story that I need you to listen to about this topic. We're going to read through it. It's quite long, so you've got to hang with me a little bit. We're going to kind of dissect it, starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. Here's the story Jesus said. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now. Instead of waiting until you die. So his father agreed and divided his wealth between his sons. And a few days later, the younger son packed up all his belongings and took a trip to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money on wild living. So for the purpose of this story, let's just pretend, where'd he go? Vegas, right. You all knew what I'm talking about, right? Woo, Salt Lake City, Vegas, right? He went to Vegas and uh, something like that. And when you think about Vegas, you got to think, man, those guys in their ad department, brilliant, right? Brilliant. Because everybody knows the tagline. What stays in Vegas or happens in Vegas? Oh, I already gave it to you, right? But you would have known it anyways. The bottom line is, is you don't have to have self-control in Vegas. You, you would never see an ad campaign like that. Vegas, the center of self-control, right? <laughs> Vegas, incredibly deep character. No, you don't see things. It's like, hey, we all agreed because we all saw the video or the, uh, the advertisement. Nobody talks about it. Vegas is about losing your control. You put behind the driver wheel, the driver's wheel, your desire. And whatever, wherever you go, it happens. That's Vegas. And so this guy goes to Vegas and he, he begins to self-medicate. He begins to, to chase the things that make him feel good. Man, and, and it feels good. He, he chases the stuff that makes him feel significant. Here's the first pitfall that we come along. I'm going to give you several pitfalls here. Here's the first one that this guy runs into is an uncontrollable spending. So Jesus says in this story, he had all this money. He lost it all. Gone. All gone. I don't know how long it took. We don't know how long. Seems like it was short, but it's gone completely. It's probably easy for you and I to read this story because I did this initially when I read it. I'm like, well, then don't go to Vegas, right? Stay in Salt Lake City. But that's not true. Stats say 50%, 50% over 50% of all Americans spend more money than they make. You apparently don't have to be in Vegas to run into the pitfall of spending all your money, uncontrollable money, right? In fact, here's, here's one that hits closer home, Utah you've probably heard this, has been one of the highest states for bankruptcy filings in the United States, twice the national average. We got a problem. We got a big problem. I've got fr uh, friends in the banking business here and in the insurance business, and they tell me in the loans business, they go, no, it's true, man. Repossessions, bankruptcy, even before this year took place, skyrocketing. What does that mean? Uncontrollable spending. Proverbs 21 says this, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools, ouch, but fools spend whatever they get. Wise, then you, then you save. You control that. You're a fool. You just give it all away. You just spend it all on whatever you want. Our culture totally encourages that. I don't have to tell you that. Just spend. Feed your desires. Go for it. It'll make you feel great. And it does make you feel great, doesn't it? Yeah, some people say, oh, shopping won't make you feel good. No, you're a liar. <laughs> That's not true. Shopping does make you feel really good for a little bit. And then you got to keep spending and buying to keep the euphoric glow up, right? That's what this guy did. And he hit the pitfall, and it led to destruction. 
He blew all his resources. Here's the second thing he did, not only running out of money, but he ran into the second pinfall. He spent all his money on, what did the, the passage say? On wild living, totally out of control, uncontrollable lust. We know it was uncontrollable lust because later on in this passage, we're going to read here in a second, he blew all his money on prostitutes. So it was this wild living that he, he, he just spent in, in Proverbs. This verse isn't on the screen, but in Proverbs chapter 6, it says, un- uncontrollable lust can cost you your wife. And I would add, and sometimes your wife and your life, and both of those interchangeable. Un- uncontrollable life will just, it'll, it'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your marriages, your relationships. And when you and I fall in this pitfall and let our desires control our, sex, our this sexual appetite, we lose we lose when our lusts start calling the shots. Listen, something else I don't have to tell you here. Number one way uncontrollable lust starts to creep into our life. You don't even have to go to Vegas, right? The number one way it creeps into our life is how? It's pornography. And pornography is huge. Four million pornographic websites to date. That means every time you go to Google and put something in, you have a 25% chance, one in 4% chance that you're going to actually go to a pornographic website. And we don't talk about it, right? Because it's embarrassing. If you don't have control in that area, you either don't talk about it or you lie. And I need to tell you that pornography, this pitfall right here, this uncontrollable lust, it is killing men at K2. And some of you men in here, some of you men in here, it's killing you. You know it. It's destroying your relationships. It's destroying your heart. You feel empty. But you don't know what to do, so you keep self-medicating, and it's out of control. You're spinning out of control. And guess what, ladies? 30% of you are in the same boat. 30%. Did, did anyone just get really surprised by that? Yeah, because we feel like it's only a guy's deal. No, no, no. That means three out of ten of you women in here, 30% are in the same boat. It's big. It's a deep problem. Because in the privacy of our home, you're only just a few mouse clicks away from very, uh, uh, from seduction, addiction. It's damaging. It's destroying lives and marriages. It affects, it affects everybody in one way or another. Recently, Rick Warren was being interviewed. He's pastor of Saddleback Church. He wrote the Purpose Driven Life book. And here's what he said on this topic. He said, in my flesh, I want to sleep with every beautiful woman I see, but I need to control that desire. You know what I love about that statement is that he is being ultra transparent. He's calling it out. He's saying, listen, let's, there's no cape on these shoulders here, right? That's what he's saying. I have to fight it. I got to fight it. And I need to tell you, as Andy Marshall standing here before you guys, I'm a real dude. I'm a real guy on a real Jesus with, with a real journey with Jesus every day of my life. And, and I have to tell you, if God doesn't show up in my life, my life is a train wreck. It is. It's over. I'm doomed. And many of you are in the same boat. I, I could fall into this pitfall just like that. And I got to fight these evil desires. And I could only do it when I engage with God. Let's go back to our story here. Luke chapter 15. And at that time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. So he persuaded a local farmer to hire him to feed the pigs. And the boy became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. Can you imagine? But no one gave him anything. And when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired men have food enough to spare. And here I am, I'm dying of hunger. The son gets his first dose of reality. (laughs) Oh, it was so good. But now the gravity of his situation has totally settled in. He's gone through uncontrollable lust. He's gone through uncontrollable spending and it depleted his heart, depleted his resources. And now here he is sitting with pigs, totally reflecting on his plan, gone totally wrong. And it's starting to kill him. Do you think that's how he, he thought it would end? No way! He hit the big time, man. He got the money, he got the resources, and he he, he went off to make something of himself, right? He had a plan. That's, that, it was all good. And I bet when most people go to Vegas, right, or, or most people just start to dabble in little uncontrolled areas or whatever, it's all good. The plan is great. I'm going to hit it big. I'm ambitious. I'm going for it. 
But here's the next pitfall that this guy runs into is uncontrolled ambition. Completely out of control ambition. And for some of you here, this is a big issue. See, you may, you may be thinking of these first two pitfalls and go, well, I don't know, uncontrollable spending, I'm okay, I'm pretty good with the budget, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uncontrollable less, no, I've, I've fortified myself in that area, I'm all right. But, but ambitious, you're very ambitious. <laughs> and, and actually, you've started to spin out of control a little bit on that area. Chasing ambition. Normally, when we think of ambition... We don't think it's normally bad, do we, right? If I say, hey, you're an ambitious fellow or she's really ambitious with her sales or whatever, it's actually a compliment. We think it's a compliment. But I think a lot of us is taking this compliment and we start to brag about how ambitious we are and go for it and suddenly it's controlling our life and our families are falling apart because we're so ambitious and that's all that matters, nothing else. And I start to use this ambition to medicate, to mask the pain this emptiness, this stinky cloud that's following me around because somehow when I'm ambitious, it brings value to my life, right? And when I don't have ambition, ah, I'm not as valuable. And the walls start falling in. Here's where the story takes a turn with this boy. He's had enough. He's laying amongst pigs. And in verse 20, Jesus says this, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long distance off, the father saw him and filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quickly bring the finest robe of the house and put it on him and get a ring on his finger and sandals for his feet and kill a calf which is we've been fattening in a pen and we've got to celebrate with a feast for the son of mine, for this son of mine was dead and now he's returned to life. He was lost and now he is found. So the party began. We're going to come back to that in a second. We cannot leave that scene alone. But let's read on for a moment here. Verse 25. Meanwhile, dun, 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 right? Meanwhile, in another county, the son, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, right, this is the responsible guy. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. What up? (laughs) What's going on? And so he asked one of the servants what was going on. Okay, I said that. Verse 27, your brother is back, he was told. Your father has killed the calf that we were fattening and and has prepared a great feast. And we're celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother was like, yeah, sweet. No, the older brother was angry and he wouldn't go in. He's pouting right? He's angry. And his father came out and begged him. And he replied, all these years, I've been working hard for you. And never once, never once refused to do a single thing that you asked me to do. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. You didn't even give me a a, a cow. Throw me a goat, dad. You didn't even throw me that. Verse 30, and, and yet the young, uh, yet when the son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the finest calf we have. Verse 31, his father said to him, look, dear son, you and I are very close and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and now he's found. What's the pitfall here? A brother who is angry. He might be justified, do you think? You never even threw me a goat. Is that where we get that, that phrase, you know? You never even threw me a goat. You, know, you didn't even celebrate me, Dad. Here I've been sitting the whole entire time. I've been doing everything. I've been dutiful. I've been dependable. I'm looking after your flocks. I'm, I didn't go away. I didn't go to Vegas. I stayed right here. I was, I was the whole time. And you don't even celebrate me. And you can see the, the scene, right? He starts, <laughs> he starts getting really angry and he's probably pacing and, and getting very upset and is growing inside of him. And he's outside, arms crossed. He's not even going to go in. And he goes, I can't believe this. My brother, he goes off, he blows all his money, all your money, dad, on, on prostitutes and while living and drinking and whatever he was doing. And you throw him a party. See, this brother doesn't struggle with the uncontrollable lust and ambition and spending and all this. You know what this guy struggles with? Anger, festering up and just, poof, he just explodes. Explodes. 
How about you, man? Do people run for cover because of your anger? Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. This word fool here, all throughout the Old Testament, you see this word actually translated as arrogant. An arrogant man deals with uncontrolled anger. Those are a few of the pitfalls that Jesus points out here. Lust, spending, ambition, anger. The list goes on and on and on. And it's, hard, it's not hard for us to point out the problems. That's easy to do, right? You can point out the problem. The hard part is actually uh, seeing these things in our life and, and being able to actually get them under control. So when, Paul, when Peter says, take, take self-control and add it to your faith, how do you do that? What does that look like? So here are the problems. How do I actually, how do I actually have victory over that? What does it look like to add the self-control? So we have to go back and visit the verses we, we skipped here. Let's go back to verse 18 for a second. What does that self-control look like in our life? And this is pretty amazing. Look at this here. To move, for you and I to actually move towards a life of this inner strength, right? In this temperance, this self-control. Here's the first one that we find in, in verse 18 that you and I have got to turn around. Let's read the verses. Verse 18. The son said, I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me as a hired man. He turns around. Self-control starts with the turning around. There's a great theological Bible word that we, we throw in here, terribly theologically, and it's called repent. That's really what the guy did. He repented, which means to change your mind, to change your course, to readjust, to go back, to turn back and to confess. That is the first step to developing self-control in your life. So you think about that category where you are just spinning out of control and maybe you're the only one that actually knows about it. It starts with, the self-control starts with confession. It starts with turning around, repenting, coming before God and saying, listen, my heart, God, isn't lining up with your heart. I'm not living this life you designed me to do. I confess that. I repent of that. I, I, I scrub it all away. I push it back and I run towards you. I need you. I turn around. I'm coming home. I'm adjusting the course. And what was the reaction of the father? He runs out. <laughs> he didn't stand there and go, yeah, about time. I totally knew you'd crawl back. He didn't say that. He runs out, kisses this guy, holds him, said, oh, you've returned. Celebration, embracing. What a great picture of God our Father, isn't it? Oh, man. God, I'm I'm spinning out of control in these areas of my life. Forgiveness. But then the Father does something. He gives the boy some gifts. Did you notice these gifts here? He gives him three of them. Look at verse 22. The father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Why a robe? Why why a robe? This robe is really significant culturally, very significant here. It represents restoration. He says, I'm clothing you. I'm restoring you. You are in my family quickly forgiven generously placing this on his son's shoulders. Robes were, were, were held back out of honor for the guests, for people of high value. And so he's putting the robe on him, restoring him. When you and I are lacking self-control, here's the first thing, and I want to encourage you to really, really think about this this week. When you lack self-control, to turn around, to repent of those things, because the Father is waiting to lavish forgiveness and grace upon you. See, the lie is, is that you and I, we think that we, we can never have control. And so we just kind of continue to medicate and live in it. And God says, oh, you have no idea how much I can just, just drape on you of forgiveness and grace and restore you. What, what, what repenting is really all about, I guess if we said it in a different way, it's really just giving it all up. It's giving it all up. 
And when you think about that, when it comes to self-control, that is so counterintuitive, isn't it? That in order to get self-control, I have to give up control? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it says. God has some really wonderful, what I love to call like upside down, different ways, principles in the Bible that just don't really make any sense sometimes. Have you come across any of these? And they're kind of fun, you know, and they, at first they don't seem to make a whole lot of sense, but, but in real life, they actually start to work out kind of like if you, if you want to really live, then you have to die. What is up with that? If you want to win, you have to, right. If you want to be great, you must be servant, right? If you want to be first, you have to be, and if you want to get self-control, then you got to give up control. And you come running to the Father and He drapes you and He restores you with grace. See, God wants us to have control. And it starts with Him actually controlling our lives that He calls us to live. And the way He controls it is when we engage with Him and He is inside of our life, enveloping our life, dwelling within us He develops the very self-control that I need. And his presence is the only thing that can bring that. And before long, this dark, stinky cloud that surrounds my body that I'm medicating, surrounds my soul and my life that I'm medicating, starts to dissipate with the restoration that God brings. And he helps me then to say no to those very things that are destroying my life. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. For when I tried to keep the law, I realized I could never earn God's approval. So I died to the law that I might live for God. And I've been crucified with Christ. I myself no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I'm restored to Him. So I live my life in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see what it says there? That when I turn to him and when I'm crucified with him and when I drink full of God and Jesus Christ and his his payment for me on the cross, when I repent, when I give it all up and his presence come into me, Christ in me, do you know what that does for me and you? It brings approval. That's what the robe is all about. The father draping the robe saying, I approve of you. I restore you. Approval. And when I find that approval in my life, that approval leads to an inner strength. And when I have the inner strength in my life, that brings self-control. Isn't this interesting? And when I have self-control in my life, it starts to bring and lead me to a more fulfilled life, the life that God is calling me to. That's why Peter says, add self-control to your faith. But it starts with understanding the approval that only God can give you, the restoration that only He can bring. The Father gives the gift, another gift to the Son. He says, first, give Him a robe. And then He goes on to say, and put a ring, in verse 22, put a ring on His finger. When you think about the significance of the ring, it really has everything to do with being involved with groups of people, doesn't it? or with relationship with one another. I wear this wedding wing because my, my, my bride sits down here. And you know that I'm married. I'm betrothed to this woman. She and I are together. It's a relational deal. Uh, we wear wedding rings for all kinds, not wedding rings, but rings for all kinds of other things, don't we? Class rings, college rings. If you're in the army, you might pick up a ring. If you, uh, uh, if you win the NFL, right? right? You guys know what I'm talking about? You get the ring. All of these things symbolizing, signifying that we are part of something together. So in order to live a life that's moving towards self-control and inner strength, I must first turn around, give it up to God. And here's the second thing that the ring signifies, you can write this down, is that I can't go through it alone. I can't do it alone. I, I can't do that. See, once I realize what I'm struggling with, then I start to invite other people along for the ride. Does that make sense? Because when I, when I know what my struggle is, it is so much easier <laughs> to actually struggle through it with other people. If you've been here at K2 for any length of time, you hear us say it all the time, that one of our major values here at K2 is to live life together. Do life together. Do you hear that term a lot? Because life is meant to live together. So I invite other people along for the journey and I'm not fighting on my own anymore. Jesus modeled this all the time. Right? In the very front part of his ministry, what did he say? He's walking along. He goes, hey, guys, 
dude, let's do this together. Come with me. Let's do this together. And if you read through the New Testament, you see the Apostle Paul, the, the same instructions are from him all throughout his writings. He, he didn't write in the singular. No, he often wrote in, 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 the, in the plural. Maybe because, I don't know, maybe he was Southern. He's like, y'all or you all or we all or whatever. But we always see that in his verbiage. Possibly he wasn't Southern. I don't know. I'm not a scholar. Maybe he wasn't Southern. But I'm really willing to bet what he got was you have to do it together. You can't do life alone. You're struggling with self-control. It's probably because you're not in the context of a growing relationship. Almost all of my spiritual growth has happened in the context of relationships of people walking alongside with me. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15 says this again, fools, remember what that translates as? Arrogant people think that they need no advice, but the wise listen to others. So you and I, we need people in our life that love us, that help us, that motivate and encourage us, that hold us accountable, that are willing to peel back the layers and go to the depths with you, which requires then that they're safe, right? That you can, you can go to them and say, listen, I'm totally taken in this area. I need help in this area. I'm hurting in, in self-control in this area. I don't have any control. I'm spinning out of control. And I want to encourage you. Here's one of your takeaways for the week. I want to encourage you to actually start praying through that if you don't have those people in your life. Don't orchestrate it. Pray through it and ask God to bring those people into your life that will help you go beneath the surface, who will, who will love you, who will walk alongside so that you don't miss what God has for you, living life in the context of his body. So Peter says, add self-control to your life. The first way to do that is to repent, to turn around, to give it to him, to run back to the Father, to come home. The second way to do that, signified by this ring here, is to walk along with other people. Do it in community. Link up. And here's the last one. We're going to end with this. The last way to start growing uh, self-control into our life, uh, and I, I got to tell you, this is the best one, is to live like a free man and a free woman. Notice the last gift that the Father gives here, verse 22. Quick, he says, bring the finest robe into the house, put it on him, get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. See, in those times, servants and slaves didn't wear sandals. They didn't wear them. And the father is saying, you are not my slave. You are not my hired man. You are not my servant. Put sandals on that boy's feet. You are family. In other words, you're free, man. You're free. You are my son. I put my robe upon you. I restore you. I give you my ring. You're a part of us. And you are free. You're free. Listen, there's a phrase that I want you to remember. If, if anything today that I talk about, don't forget this one point, a theological truth, that when you and I engage God and we start to know Him and we're living life together, these five words are true. I am not a slave. I know this is funny, but I want you to say it with me. I am not a slave. With conviction now, I am not a slave. I'm not a slave to that. See, in the midst of temptation, when I'm reaching for that medicator, I'm losing control, I'm spinning out whatever it is that I use to ease the pain in my life, whatever that is, I want you to grab onto that phrase and I want you to say it. I am free. Oh, sorry. I am not a slave. <laughs> I should say it myself. I am not a slave. All right, now we have to say it again because I messed it up. Ready? I am not a slave. When you start to reach for that medicator, that's what you say. Here's the truth of where that comes from. Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Sin is no longer your master. No longer your master. You are no longer subject to the law which enslaves you to sin. Instead, you are free by what? God's grace. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a slave God has given me, what this really means is God is giving me authority to win. My authority? His authority. 
to win over the areas of our life, your area of your life where you are losing self-control, where you're spinning out of control, where you're self-medicating. You are not a slave because you know what a slave is? Beth and I were talking about this last night and she pointed out to me, she goes, a slave is someone who is held against their will. You are no longer held against your will. You're not held. You are free. And grace is that key. It's like God comes over to you. You are free. You are free. You are unlocked to freedom. So next time that cycle comes, you know the cycle I'm talking about of, of, of the self-control, the spinning, the cycle of there's the temptation, there's the medicator. I'm going to give in. All right, I just gave in. There's the temptation, right? I'm going to give in. Now I feel like failure, and this failure then leads to guilt, and I feel so guilty to myself, I start thinking I'm never going to win. Before that kicks in, that cycle right there, you say, I'm not a slave to that. Did you hear me? I'm not a slave to that. And I'm telling you, let's get real practical here for a second. You may need to start taking little sticky notes all over. I don't care where you put them, your forehead on the dash, wherever it is, your children. Put them everywhere you want, just all over the dog. And you say, I'm not a slave. And you remember who you are because there are sandals on your feet through the grace of God. Yeah, I love that because that's dangerous stuff right there. They're going to kick me off the stage. I know it. Peter says, you add faith in God. You know him. You engage with him. And then you take these seven things and you put them in there. You, just like ingredients into a dish. Knowledge of who he is. Last week, goodness. Today, self-control. What are you unlocking? Everything you need. So that you walk out of here today with hope. So you walk out of here today with freedom. You walk out of here today coming home to God and saying, no longer, I'm no longer going to hide in the shadows. I'm no longer going to be devastated. No longer are my walls laying on the ground. But through the grace of God, my spinning out of control becomes controlled by Him. I want to worship. <laughs> There's nothing more that I want to do than worship a God that gives me that. Ben, why don't you guys come up here? And as we move into this time, I've got to tell you this little phrase, uh, this German phrase I, uh, I heard. Guess where I found it? <laughs> Our local German. <laughs> do we have more than one German? We may. We, we probably do. But Christian told me this uh, in, our, in our office. He said this, old German phrase. I don't know, maybe he just borrowed it. I totally bought it though. You can't, you can't keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep him from building a nest over it. Temptations are going to fly all around us. But self-control is keeping the birds from nesting in our life. There are always going to be areas always going to be areas where you and I are going to be losing control, slipping, where you and I start to medicate, whether it be through food or spending or ambition, working, right? Just working so hard and we hold that up as a banner and we wave that and go, look how hard I'm working. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're self-medicating where I start to bring value to myself by things on the outside. I start fixing internally. I start fixing internally with things on the outside of my life and I medicate. I feel lousy. I feel like a failure. I feel all these things. I need you to, to really, really pinpoint what that is for your life. You probably already know. You've already got it in your head. For some of you today, the very first thing you need to do during our worship time, very first, don't think about it. Don't wait. You've got to do it. And that's running home. That's turning back and saying, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own anymore. I don't have any power on my own. I don't have any strength on my own anymore. As much as I keep trying to kick this habit, this addiction, this whatever it is, this topic, as much as I keep trying, it just keeps raising its ugly head. I can't do it. I turn and I run back to you. I'm running back to you. And God says, if you would do that, you have all the grace in the world. And for some of you, that's a big reality that you need to do right now is to take this time of worship and actually go to him in prayer. For others of you, this, this time of worship may be that you need to start praying for people that will walk alongside of you. We've got, we got a lot of Life Together groups here that are going on at the church. And it may not even be within those. It may just be people that, that God brings into your life, but it starts by praying. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. 
You weren't made to do it alone. You got to run home. And then you got to do it with other people. And finally, let's celebrate today through our worship time. We are free. We're free. We are no longer bound by sin. We're not. We're not. The only time the sin has control over me is when I totally give in to it. God says, you don't have to give in to the destruction anymore. You are free. Freedom starts with entering into that relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not feeling free today, it may be that you have not actually come to a place where you've done that. Where you've come to Jesus and said, I need all of you in all of me. I need all of your forgiveness, all of your grace, everything that you did on the cross. I need that. Freedom instantly takes place. That's faith. And then his character becomes my character. And his qualities become my qualities. Take that and run this week so that we would be people that we reflect him, adding self-control so that we would have everything we need. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for paying every cost for us. Thank you for giving us every ounce of grace. Thank you, God, for for throwing robes on our shoulders and restoring us. Thanks, God, for bringing us into your family. Thank you, God, for for, uh, putting sandals on our feet that we are free. Thank you, Lord, that you have done everything for us. God, we worship you. We honor you. We desire to emulate you. We desire to, to increase our faith in you. God, that people would look at our lives and see you, see your glory see your character, and fall in love with you. Because, God, we can't do it without you. We can't manufacture self-control. We need your self-control. Thank you, God, for giving us. You don't hold back. You give and lavish it upon us. So for that, God, we honor you. We worship you. We thank you. We give you gratitude today. And we pray it in your name. Amen.